You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. My name is Danny Anderson, as always, your host, and I uh, welcome you back. This is another in the series, what I'm just kind of calling uh, the bunker recordings. Uh, we, uh, as we're recording this on March 26th, and it is uh, kind of in the midst of the uh, of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And so I have been, you know, like a lot of people have been locked out of their offices. And so I brought home as much equipment as I could to uh, to get some recordings done uh, during this time. And so uh, bear with me if you hear noises. Um, the other day, my wife was vacuuming right above my head, and I'm sure that'll show up at some point. And uh, so uh, bear with me if, you, if that kind of thing happens. But uh, I wanted to keep the podcasting going. Um, and today, um, I'm really excited. I have a fellow podcaster on here, and uh, it's Chase Tibbs from the Faith and Capital podcast. Chase, how you doing? Oh, I'm great. I'm good from the bunker. <laughs> He's also bunkered away uh, down there in North Carolina. And so, uh, Chase, uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you do, and then I'll get into why I'm so excited about to have you on the show. Um, yeah, I mean, right now, a lot of my energies <clears throat> are, are you talking about with work or the podcast? Or... Yeah, yeah. Uh, the podcast. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the podcast. Yeah. So I do a podcast called Faith in Capital, and the main goal is just to kind of invite Christians to uh, engage the system of, uh, of capitalism, to, to think theologically and ethically about it. Um, but also, I'm, I'm particularly coming uh, uh, at the system from a Marxist lens. Um, yeah, I, I think the Marxist tradition uh, has offered a lot of really powerful and important and basic <clears throat> um, critiques of the system and, and, and ways of, of viewing what it is and 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 um, how it does what it tries to do and so yeah I, I've I found that really helpful and that's kind of like what I do I want to make it super accessible and invite everyday workers to fight for our liberation. <laughs> Yeah, and you say everyday workers, and I think that's what's so, um, I think, I don't know, refreshing about your podcast. Uh, you actually, I, you speak in such a way that I feel like you're speaking directly to people who've never heard this kind of message before. They're, they're folks who like are in um, kind of mainstream Protestant evangelical um, sort of low church traditions. I, I don't know. I'll get into your sort of tradition a little bit, but you, you do sort of like um, target a really um, specific audience. And, and I've really appreciated what you've been doing. So I was really happy you reached out to me on Twitter at one point and I asked you to come on the show and, and thanks for thanks for doing it. That's cool, Danny. Thanks so much. Yeah. And um, so I have to ask before we get really kind of rolling, how are you um, doing through the COVID-19 crisis? You know, doing okay. I work at uh, a Charlotte airport. I'm a union worker and we've just been helping uh, helping all of our coworkers get signed up for unemployment right now, getting a list of resources and making sure that people uh, will have food, uh, will have a roof over their head, will have the necessary health insurance that they need. Um, so on one hand, you know, like uh, my partner and I will we'll be okay, but my community won't. And that is deeply uh, unsettling. 
So, so yeah, that's kind of like where we're at right now. Yeah. And you're both healthy right now. Um, we're both healthy. Yeah. Um, I'm on furlough, so I no longer have to go to the airport, which is, you know, ridiculously still open. But on the other hand, my wife is a, a nurse and so she's on the front lines every day and, um, she, the, the healthcare system is not, has not prepared healthcare workers or the population to combat such a crisis. And so your thoughts and prayers would be really appreciated, but also, uh, your eventual, you know, uh, getting back to organizing for a whole new world is, would also be much appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. You got those, man. Um, and, and yeah, we're experiencing the same thing up here. I know a lot of the local, um, restaurants have, have shut down. Um, some of them under, uh, there's Pennsylvania has a general, like oh, only life sustaining businesses can stay open. So restaurants can stay open if it's just for like curbside pickup or delivery or something like that. But, um, public spaces are all kind of closed. My local comic shop is now, uh, has had the shutter up here. And so, which is kind of a drag for me, but, uh, um, and, and now I'm going to have to figure out how to mail order through them and all that kind of thing. So it's very complicated. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it is, you start to see, I guess this is what makes your appearance on this show um, all the more timely because what you're, what you've been describing uh, on your show um, has been the various contradictions um, and inequalities within our capitalist system. Right. And, this crisis is making that apparent. And so you see people breaking into two, not more than two camps probably, but at least two camps, one of which is this is like too damaging to our economy. We need to risk people's lives. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other um, are people who are questioning the the foundations of the economy that we're supposedly um, losing at this point. Uh, do you have any quick thoughts on that debate? Yeah, I, I mean, I absolutely agree with you that this health crisis is revealing um, a deep uh, re- a reality that has been long coded up, not just by the Republican Party, but by um, the Democratic Party as well, that America is exceptional. It's, um, it's superior. It uh, has provided the best world, uh, the, the, the best opportunity for human living for its own people. And then also for the, uh, obviously for the rest of the world as well, right? This innocence and this exceptionalism. But, um, the fact that people can't survive, people are panicking after several days, um, of a health crisis, uh, and, and an economic crisis is, it really does reveal the, um, the absurdity that, that we have a good life here in the U S. Um, People will lose their houses. They'll lose. Um, they'll be evicted from their rents, um, from their uh, renting. They will lose their jobs, and and again, people will not be able to survive for weeks, for months, let alone years. Um, it really does. Re- absolutely, I, I agree. It really reveals how disgusting this whole system really is. Yeah, um, I, I did a little. Facebook post the other day um, or a tweet. I think I did it in both places. Um, It was sort of a a very, I was clearly, um, it was an undercooked tweet, but uh, because it was much more complicated than my tweet made it sound. But, do you remember when the fidget spinner thing was a craze for like 15 minutes and then we had a billion of them in the store like the next day? Um, totally. Like 
our system is set up really well to uh, to do that kind of frivolity uh, and that kind of meaningless consumerism, right? But we don't have masks. Um, people in your wife's hospital are reusing masks. Um, exactly. Right? Um, it's not set up to do truly like life sustaining important things, right? And I think mm. that's what's getting left out of this whole conversation um, about saving the economy, like. Um, and, and so, and I think that, uh, um, I had a, I had Derek Varn on here recently and, and he talked about, we just have no imagination for how to go forward at the end, um, at, at, at this crisis moment in capitalism. And so. I think that's a really like important note that you're saying is like, we currently, I don't think we have yet the imagination that we need to move, um, forward and to imagine a whole nother world because, um, I'll speak for myself. I was raised in the U.S. to think that why would you imagine – why would you need to imagine something better when you're constantly being told and then you've internalized the belief that this is the best. There is nothing better than this world. And, and uh, So yeah, so I think undermining – American exceptionalism and American innocence. I'm reading a book, and that's what it's called. <laughs> it, I, uh, I I think it it really does help. Um, it, it's a necessary step before we can actually start pursuing a radically uh, more life affirming world in the U.S. and then, of course, abroad. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, it's it's Fukuyama's end of history uh, sort of thing uh, at the end of the Soviet Union, right? And yes, and yes. I think we bought into that a bit too much. And uh, and uh, yeah, and so well, let's let's get to you and and your show here a little bit. So, um, like I said, uh, your show I think has a really particular audience in mind from what I can you know gain by listening to it. And so I, I I'm curious actually about the specific like Christian tradition that you kind of grew up in. Because um, it feels like you grew up in something very similar to me, just the way you talk. But go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I grew up uh, conservative evangelicalism. It was a evangelical tradition dom- denomination called First Church of God, okay. and we were affiliated with Anderson, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was the first twenty twenty one years of my life. I grew up spent most of my life in rural pennsylvania a small little town called punxsutawney pennsylvania oh i'm not very far from there actually I'm, oh yeah. neat <laughs> okay uh, neat. yeah so so i graduated high school there and like my dad was was a pastor um and my mom was uh was a principal uh, of a private christian school and so those were kind of like my life um in junior high and high school i transitioned to the public school but uh yeah so that was the the evangelical tradition was is what I grew up in. Um, I do like to think of evangelicalism kind of with two little different strands. Like one is pretty militantly and explicitly political. Mm-hmm. And my my dad actually often um, talks about how he would have other pastors come to him, um, Republican, uh, trying to get him involved in like pol. Uh, political stuff um, more explicitly intentionally. And he just ne- was never interested in it um, until unfortunately recently. But um, so yeah, we grew up and, and it was, we didn't have the end time stuff. Like, uh, you know, my, my partner, she grew up evangelical as well. And she did have that um, fear the end of the world. Uh, but, but yeah, so, so we didn't grow up with that. Um, so yeah, I, I guess there's. I think evangelicalism itself is pluralistic. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, no, um, that actually does. I mean, I grew up Nazarene, and uh, and so and it's uh, 
what you describe is very much like what I describe with the end time stuff. Like that was a very big part of my um, growing up. And I always kind of, they all, all of those folks that I grew up with now, I think are kind of a little appalled by me a little bit because of my interest in horror films and, and all that kind of thing. But I'm like, <laughs> you made me that way. You know, I have to say. <laughs> that is cool. I like that. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, there was a, there was a way in which there's kind of a fundamental understanding of the Bible, right? That it's sort of like, I don't know, even if your denomination didn't use the term, you know, Bible only, right? Um, there wasn't a large, like, engagement with theology or biblical studies, right? It was all just sort of like reading the Bible as some sort of, like, um, text that came directly from heaven, right? And and it's like a manual for living sort of thing, right? And and uh, and that was, that was the way I grew up as well. Absolutely, yeah. We had a, a biblical fundamentalism, <clears throat> right? I think that's a, that's a kind of... A defining character of this evangelical um, wave, and yeah, so so we we weren't interpreting the Bible; we were just reading for what it's tr- you know for its pure truth, and we were just telling the world what it what purely objectively says. You yes, know what I'm yeah, <laughs> which is very simple to them, right? Um, exactly. And, yeah, yeah, there was always just I somebody told me I just love the Bible because it's just you don't have to think about it; you just it just read it and do what it says, right? And oh then, no. And I'm like, well, and then later, you know, I'm like, then what do you do with those two Psalms that contradict one another, like, or, or uh, Proverbs, excuse me, that contradict one another back to back? The one, answer not, a, answer not a fool in his foolishness. And the very next verse is answer a fool in his foolishness, right? And so what do you do with that then if it's so simple? But, um, but that's, you know, that was always verboten. Um, anyway, and um, so I guess... The reason I want to bring that up is that I I noticed particularly in early episodes you used uh, I I would I'm not meaning this to be like a a, a backhanded uh, compliment or anything but a very kind of Sunday school like format for your for your podcast which is just sort of you reading a script right you've you've got a, a script that you've read written about a certain topic and you read it for thirty twenty five or thirty minutes right. Um, and you have a great delivery, and so I really enjoy listening to it. But the you you do like you use the story of Tamar. I remember at the beginning, right? Um, and then later on, you get into Ruth and these sorts of things, and you kind of do Sunday school like interpretations from a leftist perspective. Is that uh, purposeful or? Yeah, I think there, and and actually, I want to do some more of that in the future um, as well. I but that's where I definitely started focusing was on in looking at particular biblical narratives and then reading them from a leftist, uh, particularly anti-capitalist perspective, right? Because the whole project is, is inviting people to think about what, uh, so on one hand, it's like, can we, can we think theologically and ethically about capitalism? But then there are other, like, I think the Ruth, um, the Ruth and the hidden social reproduction series is two part. That was less about um, a call or or, or an invitation to think um, about the violence of capitalism and more so how can this story help us understand something that capitalism does? Yeah. Uh, Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was a uh, so yeah, uh-huh, there which is a cool son. I mean, it's a, a move that was right out of Sunday school, right? Because you would read the story of um whoever and now how does this tell you how to be a good kid in school, right? You know, like and that would be the sort of thing. and you've taken that same kind of uh dynamic, I suppose, that same sort of interpretive lens and just kind of adapted it for this um this particular political um idea that you have. And and I think that's why um I this is a I wanted to kind of share your podcast with with more people um, 
because I think it's a really great resource to kind of speak about these kinds of issues um, to people who aren't used to hearing about these kinds of issues, but in ways that they are familiar with, right? And there's a common language there. And so I, I, uh, I think it's really cool what you do there. So. Um, and so let me kind of shift over to the, to the political side then. How did you first kind of, I mean, it's always a question for people who grew up like we did. Um, how in the world did you ever encounter these ideas in the first place? And what kind of like leftist tradition do you sort of situate yourself in? Yeah. Um, in college, at some point, I started thinking about sex and sexuality. And and I think, um, yeah, at some point, I my actually, it was the very last semester of my undergrad that I started to think more critically about theology and, and, and philosophical questions. Um, but I don't know, there's like a, there's a year there towards the very end of, of my undergrad. And then my first kind of several months out of it that I became a youth pastor. Um, I was transitioned into a youth pastor job and within a year I got fired, um, because of my views on sexuality and the Bible. And it was a pretty rapid transformation. Uh, it kind of happened pretty fast. Um, so I think that was actually the first political, um, uh, a pro or reality that kind of directly impacted my life. And, and I was planning on going, um, by then, I had transitioned from kind of thinking about the um, theology and life and God more conservatively to more liberally, and so I, I fell in love with education. Mm. Like everyone who knew me, kind of from twenty years and before, I I think they were really confused as to why I was going to school again. Because if you knew if you knew me before, I I didn't care at all about education or learning. You know what I'm saying? I was the one who's trying to like entertain and and goof off and and all that stuff, skip class, right? But anyways, I fell in love with education and asking questions, and and my world just got you know it was increasingly getting bigger and bigger. Um, so so I got fired from that job and went into seminary full time instead of part time. First semester, uh, uh, Michael Brown was murdered, and I was at a, a liberal Christian school, Christian Theological Seminary. It's in Indianapolis, and I for the first time got to ask questions about life and God um, with uh, folks of color and queer folks. Um, who, I mean, pr pr pretty much entirely before that, I just was in white circles um, with heteronormative, um, sexual norms and, and, and patriarchal, uh, gender normativity. So, so yeah, I started to, uh, to ask questions more and more there and, and people started to reflect what they were experiencing from me, right? My, my, my whiteness, my, um, my, uh, patriarchal kind of ways of relating to other people. And so, yeah, I think my relationships through seminary were really transformative. The material was really transformative. I, after the first year, I dove into Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, um, Eddie Glaude's Democracy in Black, and Matthew Desmond's Evicted. Mm -hmm. So I started asking questions, right, about and, and reading and researching and, and trying to really take seriously what race, gendering, and, and more so like class in the terms of like income, right, or poverty, right? Um, so, so that started to happen for me, um, and that kind of started opening up the door. Uh, throughout. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that comes through even today in your show and that there's this sort of, you know, liberal perception of like the Bernie bro. Right. And um, who um, cares only about economic issues and not about these more um, uh, like pervasive issues of gender and, and sexuality. Right. And, and you actually are, 
and I, you don't adhere to that script, right? And so you're um, the. I guess what I'm saying is, it seems uh, logical to me that your initial kind of introduction to these ideas was through those kind of other marginalized communities, right? And so um, because begin, like I said, with Tamar and Ruth, right? You're you're showing how these economic structures bear down on particular communities, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And it is interesting that that narrative of the of the Bernie bro, because I personally, my experience has I've come to socialism, I've come to Marxism um, uh, because I was able to spend so much time and learn from um, and, and be transformed by anti-racist and feminist um, analysis and struggle. Um, but uh, so like I became really passionate about prison abolition and, and mass incarceration stuff. And that was kind of like the main focus for like my five years of seminary. And I wrote, I ended up wanting to write my thesis on it. And, and, and eventually like in my research and my studying, it came to be, uh, the thesis is basically on how mass incarceration, like policing and, and imprisonment patterns and trends are interrelated with white supremacy and capitalism. And how those three things can't be separated. They all reinforce each other and they all depend upon each other. And yeah, so that's kind of, that's definitely my approach to fighting um, to issues of class. It's not that class is superior to uh, or more important than issues of race and gender. But, it, but I increasingly came to the perspective that, no, I actually can't. We can't abolish white supremacy. We can't abolish um, gender inequality and gender subordination or let alone U.S. imperialism if we don't address this thing called capitalism. Yeah, yeah I was very um, enthralled by Assad Hader's book um, last year, I think, um, in Mistaken Identity. And, uh, and, and it, that, it blew my mind. Yeah, yeah. It blew my mind. Yeah, I talk about it all the time. I've, I've used it in presentations. I use it in class to, to talk about certain things. Um, and, uh, and so, and, and that's kind of the premise of that book is that the kind of liberal approach of, uh, of advocating for social, social justice issues without um, adequately accounting for the economic system that empowers that social inequality um, is, uh, I think that that's, um, uh, that was just uh, very instructive for me and, and I can hear a lot of it in you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Towards the end of my seminary years, I read like Assad Hader's, uh, that book, uh, Kianga Yamata Taylor, um, and those two anti-racist, um, uh, feminist internationalist Marxists had such a profound like impact on shifting kind of like how I was thinking and, and kind of approaching anti-racist work and feminist work um, towards adding this class analysis and this analysis of capital. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I, yeah. Um, so yeah, I can hear a lot of that in your show. Um, and so I also, so it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, if this is a misreading, but I hear a lot of like Richard D. Wolff's kind of workplace democracy sort of underlying uh, your particular, how you, the left is a very complex uh, political spectrum that has all sorts of factions that are always infighting. And so people have to choose sort of territory, right? Um, this is one thing that I joke about with Varn all the time when he's on the show. And, uh, <laughs> and so, um, and so it seems to me that I hear a lot of like that part of it, uh, that Richard D. Wolf worked at workplace economic update is the name of his podcast. Um, and so I, I hear a lot of that in you. Am I wrong in, in identifying that? 
Yeah, no, I mean, so at the very end of like uh, of 2018, I was turning in my thesis. I didn't realize it, but I had read a bunch of Marxists for my for my uh, for my work, right? But then, as soon as I was done, I was looking. I was looking for to, to dive more deeply into what capitalism is. Um, and I picked first was pointed to a theologian named Jörg Rieger, who's done some class analysis in theology. Um, a lot of like asking questions around theology and work um, in particular. And then, so he, so then through him, I found Richard Wolff and David Harvey and I, yeah. So for like the first two months after my, uh, after graduation, I just dove into Wolff, um, and Harvey literally as much as I possibly, all, all their stuff I possibly could. And then, yeah. So, so that started to, to kind of go in that direction. Um, I will say this, I disagree with Wolf's approach to how um, we may be able to transition out of capitalism towards socialism, communism. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he kind of purports the idea that we need to start building and expanding worker cooperatives, and that's like the sole, perhaps like the primary way. Yeah. And I and I and I'm all for that. Like I want to I want to spotlight um, worker cooperative work and and, and the movement there. I just don't think that's how we can build a strong enough class struggle to to win uh, across the board. You know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. His, so his idea is that basically to take the capitalism that exists, I mean, this is a, a critique I would have of his, that to take the, the system that exists and just kind of democratize it in, in kind of atomistic, uh, atomized, excuse me, um, places so every workplace will have its own kind of like co-op basically that runs it instead of having um a boss who's in charge right or a corporation who's in charge um and and on one level it does seem like a, a nice transition right but as an end it just seems it doesn't do anything to the idea of competition and um and into the distribution kind of problems that capitalism has yeah. And, and what, so one thing that Wolf does for me is that he emphasizes socialism or communism from the below, right? Um, that I'm all for, say, the, the socialism from the top, what people think of right now with, with like, uh, public and social goods, um, abolition of private property or, uh, abolish, you know, ab abolishing private property. Those things are really, really important, I think, um, for moving and transitioning towards um, a more life-affirming democratic world, but also emphasizing, I want to end the exploitation of labor. And for a plurality of reasons, I don't think that happened in the 20th century socialism. And so that's something I hope that we can continue to emphasize, ending the, actually ending the exploitation of labor. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think this is probably where, I mean, your, your kind of Christian ideas um, influence your Marxist ideas, uh, because I, I think you have some sort of transcendent um, idea of the world beyond of beyond the material. Right. And, and I think that that's uh, that's something that you're adding to um, these other influences. And I think that's uh, um, another thing I really admire about what you're doing. So um, and uh, and so um, let's talk a little bit about um Christian politics, I suppose. Um, so when I was growing up, I'm, you know, significantly older than most people right now of the, of the new. Um, and uh, when I was growing up, though, it was kind of an assumption. I'm an Xer, right? I'm like right in the middle of Generation X. And uh, cool. and, and it's sort of like a, a um, it was like an assumption if you were a Christian that you were a Republican Party supporter, right? And that was just kind of, the, and, and largely, I think it's still that way within these evangelical circles. However, mm -hmm. I think with the Trump presidency, there has been um, 
a significant dissenting voice that is now speaking. I think that voice was probably always there uh, in people, in folks like me, but who, um, but we just, it was just, we were such a, a isolated minority. Nobody ever said anything. And now I think people are saying things. Right. Um, and so I, I still think it's a significant minority, but um, the, what I've, this is my own perception. This is not like an academic study. I have no research to back this, but, um, but what, I, I kind of perceive as happening since Trump was elected is a couple of moves um, on uh, that have shattered the kind of Republican consensus. One is this apoliticism. People who think that, oh gosh, we made a huge mistake by diving in with the Republican Party and this is, we're not worked out well. So we're just going to pretend that all politics are bad, right? And we're not going to be political at all. And, mm. and then I think the danger is you just end up with this kind of like, oh, kind of wellness, self-help kind of evangelicalism, right? It's um, a, neo, a neoliberal project for sure. Yeah, absolutely, right? And and then I think the other um, large uh, kind of move I've seen is this kind of, oh, I suppose something like if you want to think about the the kind of person who reads Sojourners, right? Um, this, this kind of Christian left idea, um, by which is mostly liberal. Basically, you're you're sort of a, you're a Democrat now, right? Um, but um, you're using your your language to kind of describe uh, or your political party to describe your your Christian experience, right? Um, and so I feel like there's probably a lot of overlap in the the sense of injustice between the left and liberals, right? But I think that liberals have missed something um, in the the kind of systematic. Uh, critique that they have. Uh, forgive me if I'm being kind of I'm I'm not very articulate today I, for some reason. But um, and so, uh, what do you have to say to those? What do we, what do we say to to liberals who are like they've taken a step now they need to take another step? Um, I can just speak. I think one way we could talk about this is I, I'll speak about like my own particular experience with with transitioning from um, a conservative approach to to life and politics to a more liberal one. And one of the one of the gifts that my I think my um, more liberal communities um, had really like um, blessed me with was the shift from thinking about love individually to thinking about love socially. And, and I do, and, and while a lot of liberal circles are still very individualistic, um, I fell, I, I became passionate about social justice. Right. And, and I think a lot of, um, more liberal folks are, you know, rightly and justly really passionate about fighting, um, social issues. Um, yeah. And fighting for social liberation, but I, I guess personally, I just kept on feeling that there was a, a huge gap, a huge flaw. Mm -hmm. There was a there was something missing to the um, to the narratives that uh, race and gender in particular have really nothing to do with labor. Um, they do have something to do with like income and wealth, um, but and and we never talked about economic systems um that that had definitely nothing to do with race and gender and and i think the more i was thinking the more i was reading about um prison abolition or prison reform those started uh those that contradiction between uh the hidden economy 
that we never talked about that was normalized and justifies and naturalized. And then something that was so powerful that we weren't talking about, you know, it's it pretty scary how little we've been talking about it. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that for me, the liberal project, um, justly emphasizes, uh, say immigrant justice, um, uh, racial and gender equality, but, I, I think it's an impossible project if we don't have a real class analysis um, and, and, and particularly a Marxist uh, approach to thinking about class. Um, and then also we start really considering the history of capitalism and how that is impacting our lives. And then one last thing, I do think, unfortunately, um, you're right. Like I was, I went and visited the Sojourners um, community once, and one of the, the one of the head leaders was talking about Hillary Clinton um, as though she is on the right side of history, as, as though she is like some kind of stalwart of justice and like freedom, like a like a freedom fighter. And and at the time, I thought it was just like kind of like sad, but now I I'm realizing that the liberal um, establishment has is deeply embedded with american exceptionalism and american innocence um which which brutally exacerbates um u.s imperialism across the globe it, it's hard for liberals to even imagine that the u.s is not just not a a force for good in the world it is one of the most brutal empires that has ever existed um externally and now you know we were talking about this earlier with the coronavirus we're starting to see how disgustingly violent it is towards our own bodies let alone those most dis, um, disposed of and marginalized yeah yeah there's a sense in which um I and mean, this is a, a broad generalization i i obviously understand there are limits to the, the, the broad statement I'm going to make, but there is a sense in which you get the feeling that liberals would be okay with everything exactly as it is, as um, long as it's a, you know, a transgendered person of color dropping the drones on people. Right. You know? Um, and, and so that, that to me is the uh, um, um, kind of the fatal flaw, <laughs> like in liberalism. Absolutely. Right. Um, and, and so I also, I think that there's something really, Corollary, and I make this point with Varn a lot, um, and um, who's not Christian, but um, he's from the left, and so um, he and I like talk about how liberalism and like evangelicalism, especially, kind of both share a similar kind of approach to the world. It's this kind of moralistic um, critique of the world as on individual basis, and I think the real problem with Trump is his personal style, right? Um, uh, like in terms of policy, he's kind of a run-of-the-mill Republican, right? He's just rude about everything that he does. Absolutely. Um, uh -huh. and, and so, like, and now we're all like pining for the days of George W. Bush and oh look Ellen is sitting with George W. Bush and Jerry Jones's luxury suite right and so to me that's like um it's built on like <laughs> this kind of like um um like individual moralistic critique right and that's something that I think that's weirdly 
corollary between liberalism, um, like secular liberalism and like evangelicalism. So when you have um, like Christians who kind of turn liberal, uh, rather they turn away from their conservative roots and they turn liberal, um, then they're really not approaching the world differently. They're just having different criteria to determine who is morally good and who is morally bad, right? Um, but the the approach is still the same and it's all on an individualized moral basis, right? Um, and, and it neglects the systematic things um, that actually um, structure the lives that we live. I agree. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it's it's not that there uh, that there's fundamental flaws to the system or to this entire social order. Um, it's that individuals sh- should be free to individually be uh, individuals. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I, I don't know if that makes sense, but like uh, one side says the other side doesn't allow them. Actually, both sides kind of seem to say the same thing. These, this like Democrat, Republican, or conservative, liberal kind of anti-each other thing. They, they're both saying, listen, we want to individually be who we want to be. Yeah. Um, and, and they agree, again, like what you're saying, we don't have a problem with dropping 26,000 bombs every year on the, on the rest of the world. We don't have a problem with uh, like we agree with uh privatized um insurance uh, with privatizing housing and education we we agree on all this stuff um what we yeah so it so but what we want is is we want to make sure everyone individually can just freely be who they are um without any uh, responsibility or um, support of one another. It's taking Margaret Thatcher's um, quip that there is no such thing as society um, and taking it to its like actual lived out exactly. reality, right? And, yeah, and so, um, yeah, and I think that that's a, a problem for like anti-Trump Christians that, that have become sort of like liberal Christians. Um, I went to Wild Goose Fest one year. Um, I don't know if that's like... It's like camp meeting for these type of people. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. I've been there. Uh-huh. It's, it's down there by you. It's not very far uh-huh. from you, actually. Um, and, and it was actually a lovely time. Um, I enjoyed the, the people. And, and yeah, 90% of the, the things that I, I agreed with politically, right? But the parts that I think I disagreed with were based on this. I mean, it's just a negative version of the thing that you're emerging from, right? And and so it's it hasn't structurally changed Um the, the critique of the world um, because you're still on an individual moral basis. So like, for example, like growing up evangelical as an exer, uh, when last temptation of Christ is released uh, the movie. Um, so evangelicals would in mass uh, like boycott video stores that would, uh, that would house this movie because it's a morally bad thing to do. That's exactly the same thing that liberals do for something like I don't know, the Joker movie or something. I don't know. Just something, you know, if you watch this movie, then bad ideas are going to seep into your soul and you'll become an alt-right troll, right? And so and so and it's it's a very evangelical way of thinking. Yeah, yeah. When uh so when Trump was elected president, um I think there were two paths that I could have gone. And and there are two different kinds of questions that people were asking. The one question was how could they, right? How could they? And this was my initial question. Um how could they support such a person? Uh, how could they, uh, meaning uh, the right, elect someone, or, or, or even like my family, my my loved ones, um, the, the friends I've made for the for the first twenty years of my life? So, so I think, and that's still a question that most, um, I would say, 
self-identified liberal folk are still asking, right? How could they do this instead of be like me? But I think an alternative question that was so fundamental for my transition out of liberal approaches to all these things was how, I'm sorry, um, oh, yeah, how has my life, um, how was my theology, how were my politics, how had those things actually created the conditions in which a Trump could rise yeah. to presidency? And so, so yeah, those are two different questions. And the one says, listen, it's just this one other group that's the problem. Um, but the other one says, listen, maybe I've participated in the problem. And that opens up doors to seeing how, yeah, whole my ideology, my, my theologies, my, my politics have actually participated in the creation of such a, a violent and uh, sinful order, I would say. Yeah. No, you're totally right. I actually, I mean, the, the you know the Phil Oaks song, Love Me, I'm a Liberal? I don't know if you've ever listened to that song. Um, I, I didn't listen to anything except like DC Talk and Stephen Curtis Chapman growing up, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we should listen to this song. It's from the six or the late 60s, right? And, uh, and, and it gets at that kind of critique of liberalism, that you're, exactly what you're describing, right? And, and it's very funny. It's very snarky. And it's, he's in the 60s, and he's using terms that we don't use today, right? Uh, so just, you know, you'll be f- properly offended um, if you listen to it. <laughs> right but I actually, I'm teaching the movie Get Out um, in my horror film class um, this next week, actually. And um, I actually gave that song to my class to listen to in their preparation for that, that meeting because of the politics. I think that people don't understand the difference between the left and liberals right today. And, and I think that song makes that difference clear as does that movie. Um, I think that movie is a critique of white liberalism um, more than it is. It's not toothless hillbillies that are oppressing black people and get out. Right. It's, it's white liberals. Right. And so, um, and, and I think that um, that, that song actually speaks to that in very interesting ways. Um, and, and the reason I, I, I bring up that kind of correlation between um, like liberal um, critiques of society and evangelical critiques of society is that I feel like your show, the way it's structured um, can speak to both. Right. I think that the, the liberal will agree with your politics. Right. But you're making them see it um, in a, in a, uh, in a kind of, uh, from a structural standpoint, just as the, the Sunday school person will, will agree with your theology. Right. And now you're helping them understand the, uh, the politics behind that. Right. Uh, and so, um, and so that's why I think that there's an interesting correlation there between um, politics and religion. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about the structure of your show. Um, I've already mentioned it's sort of you uh, going through it's, it's, you know, you do have interviews with people and I'll let you talk about some of those as well, but by and large, your show is you um, having a topic of the day. In many ways, it kind of reminds me of uh, um, Philosophize This uh, by uh, Stephen West. <laughs> um, it's a little mini essay <laughs> that, you, that you're reading, right? And, and so um, uh, about a particular topic, talk me through like what your sort of plan is um, in coming up with these shows and how it is you try to structure them. <clears throat> well, I think uh, currently... Yeah, I usually have just some kind of idea that I, I'd like to, some kind of concept that I'd like to talk about and and kind of poke holes through. Maybe maybe it's in a maybe it's a, an assumption that is commonly held um, that I, that needs undermined, or maybe there's a particular part of the 
system of capitalism that I'd like to, to focus on, uh, say imperialism or how it impacts the mass displacement and migration of people across the world. Like in the future, I've, I've been thinking about, I'm going to do an episode or a whole series, right, on immigration. And so I'll probably do some kind of, I'll look for some kind of Bible story that talks about immigration. And then I'll, I'll look at um, <clears throat> how it might um, transition us into a conversation as to how capital, um, this thing called capital, how does it shape and, Im- um, and impact our spaces and places where some people get to live and where others are removed and dispossessed from. So, so anyways, I, I don't know. I, I guess I, that, I think that's one thing, right? I could, um, I'd like to, I like to look at biblical stories and narratives, and um, I think stories, that's not a, telling stories is not a strong point, uh, a, a strong suit of, uh, of the stuff I do, but um, I do think it's a, really, it's, a, it's a really powerful way of inviting people um, into thinking about something that they may have never thought about before, yeah. And then on the other hand, I think there's just a lot of other people out there doing like great work. Um, and I try my best to keep it from being, uh, like, I don't want to invite a whole bunch of like professors to, uh, and, and, and higher ed folks to come talk about their really heady books that I love, right? I love that stuff. Um, but I also know that like my friends and my family, um, from both com- conservative and liberal communities who had not gone to higher ed uh, spaces, they don't have the time or the energy or the interest in reading like 800 books, right? Or 800 page books of theory and history. Um, so how can we, how can we focus, make this a really working class project um, where anyone, I don't care if you, you don't have to have graduated from high school, right? Um, uh, but it's also going to be hopefully critically reflective and, and thoughtfully engaging uh, of this stuff. So yeah, so on one hand, I like to engage Bible stuff because of the power of, of narrative, I think. And then on the other hand, um, I, I try and do um, interviews with people who I, I think can help us engage and think about certain uh, aspects of our world. Yeah, I saw you had like Dean Detloff and uh, Sarah New on there, and, and uh, yeah, you had some really you have some really cool interviews as well. Um, and yeah, and so in a lot of ways, it feels to me like you're structuring it almost like um, a preacher. And uh, it, it would you have sort of a topic that you feel like people need to kind of think about in their lives, right? And then you talk about the topic, you ground it in some sort of biblical text, and uh, and, and I think that it, it feels very familiar structurally to anybody who grew up in church is what i'm saying yeah my, my evangelical influence is just it's hard to miss it because because i feel like if you came from more, like a more mainline tradition or um uh an anglican tradition the whole thing would probably be having do something with a calendar right the church calendar <laughs> and one of my buddies i went to seminary with who also came from evangelicalism but um uh transitioned into more um anglican spaces he was like hey sometime you should do stuff with the church calendar and it's funny because like as a as an evangelical i'm like that's a great idea <laughs> but it's just like it's like 
that's like the first assumption for so many other uh, Christian circles. So, so right now we're doing a, a Holy Week series. Uh, if you're interested in checking that out, they're super short um, episodes. But yeah, so I'm working on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. You, I was just going to say your recent episode is about Palm Sunday, right? And 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 so yeah. But you you kind of use it as a this is sort of a, a statement of radical politics, right? Um, of Jesus of sort of upending um, the kind of whatever norms of uh, the political system of his day right and uh and and so no and i think that it was it's i can see that happening in in your show now actually and i have to say i i felt you know it took me a while to get over bitterness towards my religious tradition i happened to go to a nazarene church again just based on where i live this is where i went went back into and um um but <laughs> when I, when, at one point in my 20s, I moved to New York City and, uh, and I lived in New York City for a while and, and worked for a church there and, and, uh, and, and did, uh, I think that's where I kind of became a little bit, starting to become radicalized. And, um, and so, but I remember the first time that I was there and, and it was Ash Wednesday. I had never seen Ash Wednesday before. I had no idea what I was seeing. I walked out and I saw a guy with something on his forehead and I thought, Oh, should I tell that guy he's got a smudge on his head? Right. <laughs> and then I started seeing all these people on the train with ashes. Exactly. In there. I grew up in a place that that just wasn't done and no one ever told me about it. Right. And, yeah. and I felt like such a fool when someone finally <laughs> explained to me what was going on. I felt like such an ignoramus. <laughs> Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, that's like still my today, but especially my like five years of seminary because it was a very ecumenical space, and so everyone's like, "Oh, you don't you don't know this about the Christian tradition or or this part of Christian history," and I'm like, "No, like I've spent all my life denying history." You know, we you know I would just jump back all the way back to the. <laughs> to the truth, you know, the two thousand years, years ago. I don't need history that's or ex- tradition, so that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. I, I mean, now like Nazarenes, it's a pretty widespread practice of doing Lent again, right? Um, but that was completely—I never even heard of it when I was growing up, right? As a, as a Nazarene, right? And so, um, yeah, and so, uh, and I will say this is a, one thing. Um, I I am very empathetic. I work at a, a, mercy, a Sisters of Mercy institution, and it's kind of a perfect fit for me. We have four um, like values, the mercy values that we kind of try to build everything we do off of: uh, mercy, justice, service, and hospitality. And and hospitality for me is um, like my primary kind of thing. That's that's I'm like obsessively. I feel I, maybe because I'm from Cleveland and I just always feel for the underdog. But if somebody feels left out, I just like take it very personally, right? And so I, I very, um, I'm very much about hospitality. And so I try to be politically very hospitable too. Like I, I'm trashing liberals a lot today, but very often I'll have liberals on this show and very often I'll have conservatives on this show. I have friends who I, I disagree with their politics, right? But um, I'm very hospitable to to them. And I think that's something that's kind of missing. And, and um, this is a roundabout way of connecting to something that we've been talking about here. Um, and I remember when I lived in New York City, I actually went to um, Tim Keller's church uh, back in the late 90s when it was sort of the the high point of, of, uh, of his ministry in, uh, in New York City. And to me, like I realize, you know, now that there, are, I mean, I don't agree with that kind of, kind of Calvinist like theology completely, right? 
But for someone who grew up like I did, um, that was revelatory um, preaching, right? That was like it was intellectual, and and he would reference Nietzsche in services, right? And 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 to me, it was like a completely liberating experience being um, it, sitting at the teaching of this conservative like um, theologian, right? And so um, I, I think that that's another problem that like left. Christians have is a, is an inhospitality inhospitality <laughs> inhospitality to um, uh, to people who are just at a different phase of their kind of intellectual journey. Just because they haven't heard of anything yet, um, doesn't mean they won't right. And just because if someone's really into something that you were over five years ago, and then there's this Twitter way of just dismissing them like like oh they're just onto old stuff like that's new to them right. And, and so and, and I. I think that that's an important thing that the left really needs to kind of like take into account is to be more hospitable to people who just aren't there yet. Right. So as I'm critiquing liberals, like I'm hoping that they get there. Right. But um, I don't know. I don't know what you have to say to that. That's just me kind of ranting. No, I'm with you. I, it is confusing. If you, if we really do have a more complex systems analysis of, of, the creation of, you know, what some people call social sites or, you know, societies, right? Yeah. How complex this is. Um, <clears throat> how quick some leftists, just like liberals and conservatives, especially, and, and perhaps social media has really exacerbated this among um, all, all groups, and it's and it's really infected some uh, some of the left. But this this quickness to just crap on other groups, um, um, I think that really, A, that's not um, how we organize people. That's not how we're going to win. And if you've ever done any organizing, whether through labor or community stuff, you know that you can't start off by saying, uh, screw you. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Uh, you're the you're, you're the worst. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you, that's not how you organize people. Yeah, think, and, think of how the Democratic Party treats you and don't wow. treat other people like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So yeah, no, I'm absolutely with you that um, each, uh, all, all of us, we are socially created and very complex. Um, literally, an infinite number of uh, things have happened to bring us where we are today. And having, and to me, theologically, you know, we that really opens up the space for grace. Let's, we're not trying to like justify or water water down the the brutal sin and violence and death that. We all participate in some groups more directly and, and intentionally participate in, but I do think that grace and um, grace for ourselves and grace for others is a necessary um, uh, value that we need to embody in ourselves um, moving forward. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to kind of end on this idea of um, like organizing in these spaces that are, I mean, very hard soil, if you want to use biblical um, analogies, right? These are, these are like, there's a baked in anti-socialist sentiment in um, most American churches, right? And it's, it's baked in hard. And so um, I think what you're doing is like, is an attempt to kind of break up some of that soil, right? But, um, but it is an extremely difficult um, process to, uh, because you're not only dealing with like, conservatives who are sort of um, 
um, baked in anti-socialists, right? But you're also dealing with the liberals um, who <laughs> who have emerged from socialism and yet also kind of uh, reject a lot of the uh, the tenets of this, which I think you do a good job of showing that are based right in the gospel. So, um, yeah, I would recommend. You know, I would encourage folks. Um, first of all, if you want to pick up a book, uh, pick up No Shortcuts by Jane McElvey, No Shortcuts, Organizing in the New Gilded Age. And she differentiates these two kind of uh, paths. One's organizing and then the other one's like an activist mobilizing work. But uh, for me, one of the things that was really helpful is is her emphasis on finding people's issues. Instead of, instead of going up to whoever the person is and saying, listen, this is what you should care about and this is why and this is how it's impacting your life um there's literally a whole like there's a strategy to to organizing people and um finding out what other people care about right maybe other people aren't sitting at home thinking obviously they're not uh, sitting at home like man being exploited at work really sucks (laughs) or wow a, a private banking system that's just not great for cities and communities but people are sitting at home worried about their grandparents they're worried about their children maybe they have health concerns maybe um there is something bad um and unjust happening at their workplace uh maybe they're being sexually harassed maybe they're uh uh uh, they're black and they'll forever, you know, be forced into uh, worse living conditions, right? Working conditions, all, all this stuff. I, I think meeting people, not just meeting people where they are, but finding out where they are and, and what they're really concerned about and helping folks um, through open-ended questions start to think about how, yeah, the issues that they are concerned about, it's not just these individual problems that you and I were talking about earlier, but there's a system um, that's connected to all these other issues that we need to. Yeah, I was thinking um, this came up in a, a show I recorded with Varn again. Um, it's the third time I brought him up today. Um, but the uh, the idea of the old mutual aid organizations, right, from from uh, the early 20th century, like what better time than right now to revive that, right? And so mm-hmm. get with a group of people where you will co-op daycare um, possibilities for people who have to go to work, but whose kids aren't in school right now, or um, someone can't pay the rents. Maybe we'll find a way to pool money together to pay somebody's rent for a month. Right. And that those kinds of like um, those kinds of mobilization issues, I think can cut across a lot of like ideological divides. Right. Um, and then you're engaging with people at the level of actual need. Um, yeah. and, and my own style is I don't particularly care if you end up agreeing with my politics, I just want other other people to help other people. Right. And um, it's the way I teach too. I don't care if students agree with my politics. I don't care if they end up staying conservative. Um, But um, my goal is to sort of serve them in in different ways. Right. And and so, um, and yeah, that's kind of, uh, that's where I wanted to kind of get to in this, uh, uh, in this great talk, man. Thanks, uh, Chase. This has been a really fun talk Um, for folks who, so, Faith and Capital are on all your podcatchers. Any any place you get podcasts, you can find it. Yep. Yeah. And you have a Patreon. Um, and, and I want to kind of uh, plug that. If you go to the Patre- Patreon website, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, um, you can find, uh, you can look up Faith and Capital on there. And uh, and it's Capital with an A, K-C-A-P-I-T-A-L. Um, and uh, make sure that you uh, look up the right Faith and Capital. I'm sure there's not probably another. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> there's probably a Faith in Washington, D.C. Capital yeah. out there. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, a Brookings Institute uh, podcast uh, or something. Uh, yeah. uh, but anyway, so, um, but Chase, do you have any uh, last words, anything you'd like to say? 
No, uh, thank you so much, Danny, for for inviting me on the show and for also being committed to the work of liberation um, for all. I appreciate you. Yeah, hey, no problem, man. Um, I'll keep listening. I'm very much enjoying um, the podcast so far, and I encourage other everybody else to do it as well. You're about 30 episodes to catch up on at this point, so uh, so get working. Um, so for uh, Chase Tibbs, my name is Danny Anderson. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. And I'll.